Good morning. Thanks again for joining us uh, online today for worship. Uh, If you're just joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called The Stories of Jesus. It's a 14-week series that we're doing, and next Sunday we will be halfway through the series. I can't believe how time flies. I'm looking forward to next week. Pastor Joe, our uh, pastor of uh, care and connections, uh, will be our preacher next week. And in many ways, our sermons today kind of go hand in hand. And so I hope that uh, as you join us today for our message, you'll be sure to come back next week uh, for Pastor Joe as he continues uh, leading us in this particular part of our series. If you've missed any of our messages, you can always go online to southsuburban.com slash sermons. Uh, Our sermons are there via podcast. Uh, You can go to our Facebook page or to our YouTube channel if you would prefer to watch them. So uh, thanks again for being with us. Today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a pretty famous sermon that Jesus gives. uh, And the uh, first part of that sermon in chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, our text for today, is actually uh, called the Beatitudes. One of the goals that we had for this series is uh, an invitation to all of us to reconsider our perspective and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, We've all heard that we need to uh, invite Jesus into our lives, to accept Christ into our life. This series really wants to turn that around a little bit and encourage us to think about what does it mean to step into the life of Christ. It's more that Jesus is inviting us into His life uh, than it is that we're inviting Him into ours. Maybe a subtle distinction, but I hope that you're wrestling with that. And I hope that as we go through the life of Christ uh, during this series, uh, these 14 messages, uh, that you're considering ways that the Holy Spirit is inviting you and your family into the life of Christ. So if you found uh, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. And God's people said, Amen. 
It was the year 1517 when Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk and priest in the Roman Catholic Church, was walking along the streets of his village one evening when he discovered a man who was passed out, drunk, on the side of the street. As he went to scold the man for his behavior, uh, he uh, was able to rouse the man to some level of consciousness and, and ask him why he was doing this. And, and the man, seeing that uh, Luther was uh, a pastor in the church, uh, said, don't worry about it, uh, uh, pastor. Uh, I've already received forgiveness for this sin. You see, what the man had done is he had purchased forgiveness for his sin of drunkenness even before he got drunk. It was something that was practiced by the church back in the 1500s called indulgences. And it was one of the things that drove Luther to begin what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. And Luther, trying to think about uh, this Reformation and, and Scripture and, and what the church is, um, he was convinced that uh, the message of Scripture is that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not something we can purchase. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that is uh, given to us by the merits of our works or the things that we do. And one of the things that really troubled him is as he believed that the reason so many people had bought into this idea that you could just pay for forgiveness was because they didn't know the Scriptures. They didn't know the faith that had been handed down for centuries from the time of Christ. And so as Luther began to put together his Reformation, as he began to try to think about what the church should be doing and how we should be engaging, not only with those of you who have been a part of the church of Jesus Christ, but those of you who might just be with us and maybe not have thought much about faith or thought much about the gospel or what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Luther believed that if we could clearly and concisely say what the essence of being a Christian was, that we would be successful. And as he was thinking about these sorts of things, he kind of came to three major points that he thought were important for every Christian to know. And they were the Apostles' Creed, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Well, you probably are familiar with those. The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds of the church. Creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, etc., etc., etc. The Apostles' Creed has become known as perhaps the most succinct summary of the major truths found in Scripture. Then, of course, there's the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard about the Ten Commandments. Uh, we teach kids how to remember the Ten Commandments with hand signals. You know, uh, there is only one God. We will not bow down. Second Commandment, we will not bow down to any other gods. The Third Commandment, I will not speak the name of God uh, irreverently. Uh, the Fourth Commandment, I'll remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Fifth Commandment, this is my favorite, honor thy father and mother. And you have this swat, you know, as if you swat a, a young child. The Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. The Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc., etc. And then, of course, the Lord's Prayer. 
The Lord's Prayer, which is the teachings of Jesus about how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or holy is your name. The Lord's Prayer, uh, not only with Luther, but throughout the church, has been a way of thinking about how we approach God in prayer. Things that we should ask for, uh, things that we should not ask for, things that uh, we should be thinking about and that we should be content with. Uh, it, the Lord's Prayer <clears throat> helps explain our relationship with God, that it is God from whom we rely on for everyday needs, from what we eat to the air that we breathe. Luther, as he put all these things together, uh, put them into sort of a booklet, and he called it, or it became called, Luther's Small Catechism. Catechism is just a real fancy word for question and answers. Well, that doesn't sound unusual to us. Uh, in questions and answers, that, that's sort of how we learn. He wasn't the first person to think of this, and he certainly wasn't the last person to think of this, but a series of questions and answers that try to teach us the essence or the essentials of the Christian faith. It's how our children learn in the school system. They, a body of material is given as the, as the educator teaches, and then there's an opportunity for the, the students to ask questions and then for the uh, educator to respond or answer the questions. It's, it's not anything that is utterly foreign to us, and Luther thought that this would be a way to help people learn the faith. Well, it's not been as successful as Luther hoped, and we still today grapple with the best ways to teach people what the Christian faith is all about. One of the ways that Jesus used was by sitting down which wasn't unusual for teachers in the time of Christ, as many of the students might stand, or in some cases they might sit around, and, and the teacher would talk and to teach, and there'd be a time for questions and answers. And these questions oftentimes uh, challenged, uh, the, the answers challenged the prevailing ideas of the day. It, Jesus uses this over and over and over again. And this Sermon on the Mount is a perfect example of his presentation of some rather significant and earth-shattering ways of thinking, of learning. And what Jesus is saying here is if you want to be a follower of me, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, recognize that I'm calling you into a radically different way of living, a radically different way of understanding your place in the human race and with God. Now, I didn't read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And really, to even understand it, you, you would want to consider reading the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew, which you could probably do in a sitting. But in verses 1-11, through 11, these verses have become some of the most famous verses of Jesus' teaching. The Beatitudes. Now, that's just another fancy old word that just simply means extreme blessedness. Because each of these phrases begins with the word, blessed. Well, remember earlier when I said that the Ten Commandments have kind of stood the test of time and been looked back to by, by teachers like Luther and others who have sought to lead the church? Well, the Beatitudes, in many ways, is sort of the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. 
Luther said that the Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, and Lord's Prayer were important. And I don't want to argue with Luther, but I might suggest that it would be certainly the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. You know, the Ten Commandments, and you can go to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 and read those, the Ten Commandments really are ways of thinking about what it means to build a nation. I would even suggest that God gives the Ten Commandments first to build the nation of Israel, to to let them understand how they are to operate, how they're to live together as a people. Jesus goes on to talk about that not only do the Ten Commandments help us understand what a just nation looks like, but also to show us our own brokenness. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Well, if the Ten Commandments are building a nation, I would suggest that the Beatitudes are building a kingdom. The kingdom of God. Not just something that is relegated to boundaries, as this kingdom is over and above or different from that kingdom, but the kingdom of God incorporates all of creation. As a matter of fact, in some parts of the New Testament, Uh, the the phrase isn't kingdom of God, but kingdom of heaven. That is is a place that is dominated and filled with the glory of God and God alone. For those who are standing or sitting around where Jesus is teaching, as they're listening intently to Jesus talking about these blessed statements, some of the things are pretty troublesome. They would have kind of smacked against the prevailing opinions of the day. And frankly, I would suggest to you that they really go against the prevailing opinions of how we live today in our nations and our culture, particularly in Western culture. Now, most of us would be able to agree that uh, we've not always placed God first in our life. Most of us would say that uh, we probably from time to time haven't told the truth or we from time to time have coveted something that wasn't ours. But I don't know, have, have any of us committed murder? Maybe, maybe we do know someone who is uh, enduring the sentence of, of that crime or someone who would admit to adultery. Most of us would say, well, I think I've got the Ten Commandments down pretty pat. That is until you read a little bit later in this Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses from what I read to you today in Matthew 5, 21 through 30, where Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. If you looked lustfully upon someone else, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You see, for the Christian... The law is not so much a statement of the things that we must do in order to be saved. Rather, it is a statement about the holiness of God and our inability to live holy lives outside of God's grace and God's mercy. And so in the same way, as that was described with the Ten Commandments, So it is also true with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not necessarily things for which you and I are to be striving for on our own strength. Rather, they are more of a statement about what God's kingdom looks like. About who Jesus Christ is. 
In many ways, these are statements that turn our experiences of the world completely upside down. So let's take a few moments and look through them. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and we'll go through these. It's nine of them. And th- th- matter of fact, these are also found in the Gospel of Luke, although Luke has only four of them. But Matthew lays all nine of them out for us, and I want to just briefly touch on them. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are the poor in spirit? Well, the poor in spirit are those who recognize their need for God. The essential aspect of our faith is that we cannot save ourselves. Martin Luther called it the bondage of the will. That is, as we want so badly to do the right thing time and time again, but every time that we find ourselves in a situation where we want to do the right thing, we find that we're not able to. We find ourselves in the same mess over and over and over again. And, and when we get through a troublesome or broken moment in our lives, we'll say, well, I've learned my lesson from there. That'll never happen again. And occasionally that's true, but for the most part, we find ourselves right back in the same situation. In the company of the same kinds of people that keep pulling us down. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you relate to that? Or a little bit later in Romans 7, verses 18 and 19, I have the desire to do what is right, Paul writes, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Where are you today? Are you still trying to work hard enough to make sure that God loves you? Are you still trying to do all of the right things within your own power that you can then say to God, I've earned my way into the kingdom. You have no other option, God, but to love me. Look how wonderful I am. And the truth is, as you and I both know, that if that's not our perspective about the relationship with God, day after day after day, we become demoralized. And suddenly, because of our own failure to understand the truth of the gospel, we begin to become angry at God. How can He expect me to do these sorts of things? He never expected you to do them to begin with. The bondage that we so often place on ourselves is not the bondage that God gives, it's the bondage we give to ourselves. It's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, it's not what the church has taught by and large, for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, but Pastor Ike, I've heard people teach it. Yes, you have. I have too. We have a word for them. They're called false teachers. They're wrong. And and if you don't believe me, that's fine. Uh, You can read the Scriptures yourselves. I'd encourage you to do that. Decide for yourself. Read the words of Jesus. See what Paul talks about. And see if what I'm telling you is true. You know, we talk a lot about grace in the church. And you're going to hear me say to you a million times, if given the opportunity, grace is receiving something I do not deserve. Mercy 
is not receiving something I do deserve. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves life. It is a gift. It is something that God gives to us because it belongs to God, and God chooses to give what is His to us. It is grace. What do we deserve? Well, we deserve punishment. Justice demands that we pay for our sins. If we break the law and we're found guilty, we go to prison. Or we have fines imposed on us. The fact that we do not receive those things is an example of God's mercy. When we are poor in spirit, we recognize that we are utterly and totally dependent on God's grace and God's mercy. And it is when we are in that position, it's when we have the humility to say to God, I do not have the answer. I do not know what to do. It's in those moments that the kingdom of heaven is given to us. And the next statement of blessed, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who do we typically comfort in our life? Those close to us? Our family? Maybe our friends? Some of them anyway. Jesus doesn't make a relational distinction. He doesn't say uh, you should comfort those who are mourn of those that you like. He doesn't say, well, comfort those that mourn that you understand their mourning. He doesn't say, comfort those that mourn who are nice to you. He makes a blanket statement. Blessed are they who mourn. (laughs) One of the hardest things to do, I think, in life is to step into someone else's story. It's even harder still to begin to grapple with how our actions or my words may have caused grief to someone else. We always want to defend ourselves, but, but, but you don't understand. You, you, you took my words wrong. It's hard to recognize our part in the brokenness that's in the world. Our part in the brokenness of a marriage. Our part in the brokenness of a relationship between a parent and a child. Our part with a problem at the office or at work. Our part in the arguments that might even occur in a church. Not this church, of course, but maybe some church out there. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, John records this image that he is seeing in the spirit and he says of jesus he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for all the former things have passed away That's what it means to be comforted. 
Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't know about your experiences or the history books that you've read, but that's typically not how wars are decided. As a matter of fact, in most of my experiences, it's the strong who rule. It's the arrogant who ascend to the thrones of this world. But that is not so in the kingdom of God. And you know that. You honor humility. So do I. You respect the strength and character of a person who does not need the praise of others. You honor those who have a quiet and steadfast devotion to the truth. The prophet Isaiah describes the Messiah, who we confess to be Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that has been led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before the shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. You see, Jesus, the supreme example of meekness, is indeed the one who inherits the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, that's why Jesus refers to Himself as the bread of heaven, as the cup of salvation that we celebrate at the Lord's table. As He spoke to the woman at the well that if she were to drink the water that He offered, she would never thirst again. You know, when we crave sweets, it can be a powerful drive within us that prevents us from having a healthy diet. Children don't normally enjoy vegetables. At least my children don't. But it is what they need. And those who are young in the faith, who are children in the faith, often desire the sweetness of the experiences. But as they grow, they come to realize that it is the hearty nourishment of Jesus Christ that truly satisfies the soul. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Man, justice and mercy are in the human world opposing values. They, they butt heads with each other. Let, let me give you an example. If I steal something from you, and you and I wind up in a court of law, the judge can see that justice is done, by punishing me and making me pay back what I've stolen from you. Or the judge can be merciful to me and allow me to go free, but in receiving my mercy, you don't receive your justice. And in receiving your justice, I don't receive any mercy. (laughs) To be merciful. To be truly merciful requires the admission that I am in need of mercy. And so, therefore, am not so concerned about making sure that I get my dues. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. We're asking God to forgive us with the same measure of mercy that we're willing to give to others. But it also requires us to be willing to surrender justice sometimes for ourselves so that someone else can have mercy. But because of human sin, this kind of brokenness could evolve in anarchy if that's how we treated everybody. If we just let everybody get away with everything, where would order be? I know. In the human world, it seems fleeting, unattainable, but it's not so in God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, it is in God's kingdom and in His kingdom only that both justice and mercy are known. And it traces its way back all the way to Christ. For Christ, the innocent one who did not deserve the cross, looked down from it and begged the Father to forgive those who had done this to Him, for they did not know what they were doing. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8, for they shall see God. King Solomon, when he writes the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, he says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, for they... Uh, I can't get past that phrase. Maybe, maybe if we said it in, a, in a, a, a way that is more relatable. Everybody thinks that they always do the right thing. Most of us don't think that we do the wrong thing. Everybody's ways... All persons' ways seem pure to them. And then Solomon goes on. But motives are measured by the Lord. Maybe that's why Solomon's father, David, when he wrote Psalm 51, verse 10, cried out to God and asked, Create in me a pure heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Are you ready? Purity of heart is not something that we earn or work for. A pure heart is a gift from God. Kind of humbles us, doesn't it? Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called the children of God. Now this is a tough one. Martin Luther King Jr., that great civil rights activist, is famous for saying there can be no justice without peace and there can be no peace without justice. Kind of harkens back to the whole idea of justice and mercy, doesn't it? The, but here, with justice and peace, the two do go together. Paul, as he writes his letter to this young student, Timothy, who has just begun to pastor a church, <clears throat> in chapter 2, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, Paul writes, be sure to take account of your passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversy. You know all that they do is bring about quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
You see, a peacemaker, therefore, is the one who continues to reflect God's will for His people back to them over and over and over again, even when it's not popular. Willing to endure insult and controversy and complaints and criticisms. Which leads us to the final two blesseds in uh, verses um, 10 and verses 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account. Not on the account of a politician. Not on the account of a platform of a political party. Not on Ike Nicholson's account. Not on the account of any nation throughout the world. Not on the account of any human opinion, but on the account of Jesus Christ. Blessed art you when you are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. You see, the Beatitudes are not about us. They're about Jesus and His kingdom. They're His story. They're not things that we have earned or things that we practice so that we can be worthy of the gift that God gives to us. No, 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 no. The gift is just a gift through faith, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Gospel message is not do these things in the Beatitudes and you will know Christ. The Gospel message is know Christ and He will give you a share of His kingdom of which these Beatitudes point toward. Unless the vertical relationship is attended to, the horizontal relationship will always be broken. We've got to get this right. This is important too. We'll hear more about that. As a matter of fact, it's an extension of this relationship. You know, in a few moments, we're going to go to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, for Holy Communion. And we're going to be fed by the righteousness of God, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans. And for Paul, the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. The bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. Now, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for this, our praise team is going to lead us in our time of preparation. Pray that you'll listen to the words that they say, the lyrics that they say. And one part of their ministry and song, there's a refrain that they're going to remind us something about Jesus Christ, that Christ has no rival. Christ has no equal. For the kingdom and the glory is in Christ and for His name. And what a powerful name it is they're going to sing. What a powerful name it is. Now let me ask you, is this the kingdom that you've been yearning for? It will not be discovered or realized through human effort. You can work yourself to the bone and you'll never attain it because it's a gift. Will you receive that gift today? Will you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and accept Him as Lord and Savior? Let us pray. Lord, prepare our hearts and minds 
as we go through this moment of preparation to the Lord's table, to be able to receive You, the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation, and that our thirst for righteousness will be satisfied as we seek to step into Your kingdom and Your story for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.